Matthew 13, 24. We'll start at 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed a good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seeds in the field? How then, how then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Well, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went to the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the wheats of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the wor world, and the good seed are the sons of, is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will, be sent, will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 13, 24 through 30, and Darren's coming up, and I'm going to pray. He's going to get started. Lord, just like that last verse said, let us have ears today that can hear your word. I pray that any distraction, any bit of um, short attention span, any bit of other things on our mind would just be calmed right now, and that we would just be able to just really focus on what you share through Darren. Lord, I pray for Darren's heart and that the Holy Spirit would speak through him. And it wouldn't be his words, but it would be your words, Lord. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this freedom to worship. And we praise you for that. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, lovely to see you all again. I was not here uh, the other week because I was sick, <clears throat> and then I got sick again this week. So, you know, it's a really interesting reality for me in the Swanson household. But um, this morning, uh, I do want to go ahead and jump right into the passage. So if you do have your Bibles open, please keep them open as uh, we dig into God's Word. But uh, thank you. Thank you for praying for me. Uh, I, I certainly need it. But we find ourselves in Matthew. We find ourselves in Matthew chapter 13 exploring another one of Jesus' parables. And as Kevin and Jeff said the last few weeks, these parables both clarify and confound. They clarify truths about the kingdom to those who want to know Jesus but they confound those who don't want Jesus or at the very least have no desire to understand his ways. 
The former are those who turn out to be the ones that God is supernaturally working in, and the latter, they are those who are blinded by their sin and unbelief. And so our parable this morning is called the parable of the weeds, the parable of the weeds, or what some people have called the parable of the wheat and tares. And this one is interesting because it's only found in Matthew, and it's one of those parables that Jesus actually, he he gives the disciples and us, by extension, this sort of behind-the-scenes explanation, okay? We see this in verse 36, right, where the disciples, they go into a house, probably one of the disciples' houses, and they ask him, hey, Jesus, what do do you mean by this parable? What's going on here? And Jesus, he doesn't rebuke them, which he does at times, but he pulls them aside and he explains. He talks to them. Now, over the centuries, there have been many Christians who have had different and often conflicting understandings of this parable, some of them less faithful to the context than others. But I don't think this parable is actually that difficult to understand if we read it carefully and in context. In fact, I think that Jesus was making a really clear and easy point to understand. Yet it's a point that is jam-packed with rich implications and meaning. And I think Jesus' point was simply this. You'll see it on the screen here. Believers and unbelievers will coexist in proximity until he comes back to bring final judgment. Believers and unbelievers will coexist in proximity until he comes back to bring Final judgment. Pretty simple, right? We could probably just go home on that note. (laughs) But here's the thing. This is a massive truth that is worthy of us chewing on our entire lives and contemplating until Christ comes back. You see, this parable is important for us today because we don't know how to live in a relationship to unbelievers around us, do we? Or if we do, it's very difficult. This passage is important because we often don't think of God's future judgment and what that means for us right now. This passage is important because we tend to be very impatient, don't we, with God's methods and his timing. This passage is important because we need hope that God will ultimately take care of evil in the world. So what I want to do this morning is I want to comb through these verses similarly to how Jeff did last week, and I want to analyze the key characters and the analogies embedded in the parable, and I want to sort of compare and contrast. We're going to look at the parable stated, which are verses 24 through 30, and then the parable explained, and that's verses 36 through 43. And as we do this, I'm going to, I really hope to explain and defend what I think the main point of this parable is, namely that Jesus' point is that believers and unbelievers will coexist until he comes back. And church, uh, I just want to let you know that this interpretation is not a novel interpretation, uh, but I will, of course, walk through Scripture because it doesn't really matter what I say, does it? It matters what the book says. And so let's dig into that together. Look with me 
at verses 24, 37, and 38, uh, the first thing I want us to look at here is the sower who planted good seeds in the field. That's the first, that's the first thing. The sower who planted good seeds in the field. The parable stated, this is verse 24, Jesus put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And then verse 37, the parable explained. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Now, a few moments ago, I mentioned that the church has had different understandings of this Parable. Some have viewed this as a sort of commentary on the good and the bad within the believer that needs to be weeded out. Others have viewed this as a commentary on the relationship between the nation Israel and the church. But if I had to guess, most of us have probably viewed this parable as a story about false believers within the church. And though that's something that scripture deals with, that's actually not what this parable is about at all. This verse, these verses, I should say, tell us that Jesus, the Son of Man, is the farmer who sows good seed, believers or sons of the kingdom. And where does Jesus sow these seeds? He sows them in the field, which this parable says is analogous to what? The world. In other words, Jesus is raising up believers all throughout the world And we'll see in a moment that the devil sows weeds in that same field, the world. So the fact that the the, the world is in view here gives us a fundamental clue that Jesus is not talking about the presence of unbelievers in the church. He is talking about the presence of unbelievers and believers in the world at large. But these two verses tell us more than just that. They show us something about the kingdom, right? You can see it on the screen, our king, his kingdom. That's what this gospel is about. And it's common for us to equate the kingdom of God with the church. But here, too, we must be careful because they are not the same thing. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on Matthew, makes an incredible case that the two terms aren't the same at all. And in Matthew, they never mean the same thing, actually. You see, the kingdom of God can refer broadly to Jesus' influence in the world or a place in which the gospel and his power has been manifested. The kingdom of God can also be combined with the phrase, sons of the kingdom. So, like in our passage today, that refers to believers who were scattered throughout the world. It, It has a broad, flexible meaning. So, why do I tell you all this? Well, our passage this morning, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to gather out of my kingdom, out of this world, and I'm going to get rid of all of the sin and all the lawlessness. I'm going to destroy it. So he's not talking about false believers within the church. Jesus is saying, I'm king. I'm sovereign. I have an inheritance from my father which is the entire universe. And as king over this earth, I am in the process of renewing all things. And there will come a day when my kingdom, this world, this universe, is free from lawlessness. And it will be perfect because I am making all things new. This is who we worship. 
This is our king. And if you just read Matthew, or your Bible for that matter, just on the surface, you're going to miss. You're going to miss what Matthew is doing here. And so let me just take three minutes or so. I just want to walk you through two key passages that I think Matthew has in mind as he ties this parable together. The first passage is uh, 1 Chronicles, actually. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. See this on the screen. David is praying here. He says, Lord, yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And he goes on to say that, God, you rule over all. And so, First Chronicles shows us that God has a kingdom that's sovereign over all kingdoms, and that kingdom is this universe. But then there's Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet says, I saw in the night, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like son of man, Jesus' favorite phrase to refer to himself. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given what? Dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And so that kingdom is given to Jesus, whom we worship. And then, at the very end of Matthew, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus says what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, to me. Therefore, you can go, because I have the authority. And so, the risen Christ is king over the entire universe. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of this parable. That's the beauty of what Jesus is saying when he calls himself the son of man who sows seed in the field, the entire world. Do you marvel at that church? Or do you take it for granted? Does the absolute reign and sovereignty of Christ, raising up believers from all tribes, tongues, and nations, bring you joy? Is that amazing? Church, I was reminded of this truth when I was in North Africa last year visiting our friends, uh, they were telling me about how there were uh, <laughs> missionaries from South Korea and North Africa, and I was very shook. I was like, what? Why? South Koreans in North Africa? Like, what is going on here? I uh, wasn't expecting that. But then when I read this passage, I thought, duh, of course. Of course there are believers doing what Jesus has said from all over the world. Doesn't it rise and fall on us, Americans, Westerners? Jesus is doing something from all across the world. He's the expert farmer who's sowing seed across the world, and they will bear fruit. So that's the first character, Christ. That's the first character in this parable, the Son of Man, the sower. But the second character we see here is the enemy who sowed weeds, this is in verses 25 through 26 and then 38 through 39. Look with me at verse 25. This is the parable stated. 
But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And then the explanation of it, verse 38 and 39. The weeds are the son of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So, Jesus, he continues the parable. He introduces conflict. And Jesus says, yeah, my kingdom, it's spreading throughout the entire world. But Jesus says that his field, while it will have wheat, it's going to be surrounded by weeds. And these weeds are not his works, but they are the works and labors of an enemy, the devil himself. See, the devil, he's crafty. He comes at night. He tries to sabotage the farmer's efforts. And he does this by planting weeds all over the field, just spreads them everywhere, right? And in the parable, these weeds, they show up simultaneously with the farmer's wheat, complicating things, complicating things. And so this situation that Jesus describes, I think most people, when they would have heard it, they, they, you know, would have freaked out a bit because this would have been a massive headache for any sort of farmer, okay? Because these weeds, they were ridiculous. They were, they were really hard to distinguish from wheat, okay? They often got so entangled with the wheat that you couldn't really even separate them and in some cases, these weeds were actually poisonous. So farmers, what they would have to do, they would just have to wait. They'd have to wait until harvest. They'd have to wait until the wheat was fully grown, and the weeds, of course, would be fully grown as well. And so when Jesus describes the work of the devil like this throughout the world, it's very telling. In fact, it tells us one key thing that I hope we, we don't miss uh, from our, our sermon this morning, which is this. We cannot live life here and now as faithful believers without encountering sin and brokenness. We cannot live life here and now as faithful believers without encountering sin and brokenness. This is a lesson that history has proven time and time again that the church just doesn't get. There have been entire denominations and movements devoted to the idea that we can get away from sinners in the world and we can somehow still be faithful to what God is calling us to. As if we can somehow still embody the kingdom. No, Jesus says, that's, that's, no, that won't work. And I'm here to tell you on the basis of God's word that that won't work. You see, church, Satan has strategically placed weeds, unbelieving people, opposed to Jesus in our midst. <laughs> you know, I've lived a lot of places growing up. My parents were in the army. I've lived in Texas. I've lived in Alaska. I've lived in Germany. I've lived in Alabama. I've lived in Maryland. I've lived in Kansas. I've lived all over. I visited many places too, Czechoslovakia, France, Hawaii. And everywhere I go, I run into the same thing, sinners, sinners. <laughs> I wake up, I go to the grocery store, sinners. Go to the gym, sinners. Open my front door, <laughs> sinners. You know, I look in the mirror, uh, sinner. 
Satan has done something. But Jesus, he's not surprised. Notice in the text, he, he, he wakes up and he already knows who did it. He says, no, an enemy has done this. This is not, this is not my work. An enemy has done this. But notice that there isn't neutrality here either, right? There's just, it's not that there's just, you know, Satan and, you know, God's people, and then there's people in the middle who don't really make a decision one way or the other. No, Jesus is saying, look, wheat, weeds, wheat, weeds, that's it. The weeds, the devil has planted. Wheat, son of man has planted. And so while I don't want to minimize the trials that many of us might, might be facing this morning or have confronted, I do want to be realistic, which, you know, I really just want to say, look, you can't escape sinners. You can't get away from brokenness and evil. Not any more than this field can get away from weeds. It's just the way it is. Another implication of this that I was reminded of when I was studying this week is that because Satan is at work in the world, this also means that we can't attribute sin and brokenness in the world to God in some sort of naive sort of way that makes him the reason why everything is terrible. No, there's a real enemy that is opposed to God's kingdom. We need to recognize that. But the other thing about Jesus' description here, or the flip side of the coin, is this. The persistence the presence and the proximity of evil to the kingdom is an evidence that the kingdom isn't present. Let, let me say that again. The, the presence, the persistence, and proximity of evil to the kingdom is not evidence that the kingdom isn't present. You see, Satan is a crafty enemy, but he's not an equivalent to God. And the incredible thing about this passage is that Jesus is still spreading his kingdom and redeeming people all over the world in spite of the fact that there are weeds, in spite of the fact that there's sin. Nothing can stand against Christ and his kingdom. And so, Jesus knows exactly what's going on here. And there's an encouraging, inspiring even, if you're willing to see it, aspect to this, at least for me. I mean, I, I'm encouraged because I need this reminder. God's plans for restoration will not fail even though evil seems to flourish. It also shifts my view of what success looks like as a Christian, right? We oftentimes think, oh, and you know, I'm, I, that church is successful because they got a lot of people. That that ministry is successful because they've brought a lot of change. Well, yes, maybe. But once again, you can have faithful ministry and still have evil and brokenness in a context, in a culture. Don't be alarmed by this. Let it shift your view of what success looks like. Faithfulness, endurance, maybe that's what it's about. And so, you've seen thus far the first set of characters, the farmer, the field, 
a good seed, right? We've also seen the second set of characters. The enemy, the devil, the weeds, or unbelievers. And then, in the text, we see the third or last set of characters. And that's the reapers and the harvest. And this really is the the crux of the parable. And this is where I'm going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Look with me at verses 27 through 30. It says here, The servants of the master of the house came to him. Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, The enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go gather them? But he said, No, less than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until harvest, and at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then if you skip ahead to just a few verses, uh, the parable explained. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears Let him hear. And I think it's at this point, church, that the parable would have seemed confusing. Not just for Jesus' initial audience, but for the disciples, even as they sat around the table at their home. But first, let me explain what these characters are and these analogies mean, okay? Jesus says that to successfully get rid of the weeds, the servants or the reapers... They have to wait until harvest. And in the Bible, the harvest was a term that usually referred to God's final judgment at the end of history, okay? And as Christians, we we believe that our God is in himself love, grace, and mercy, but he is also in himself justice, righteousness, truth, holy, which means that he must and he does Deal with sin in a way that is appropriate to his character. It's a sobering thought when Jesus uses this language and says that at the end of the age, he, the Son of Man, will send angels to gather up both wheat and weeds. Jesus says that these angels, at his command, will gather believers to himself and they will shine in the kingdom, whereas unbelievers will be thrown into what's called this fiery furnace, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, which no doubt refers to hell. And so, church, I want to ask you, when's the last time you seriously thought about hell? When is the last time that you seriously thought about hell? Have you considered what Jesus in the scripture elsewhere says about hell? is a place of unceasing pain and torment. It is a place where your deepest shame and regrets are put on display and held out against you night and day. 
It is a place where others sin and you sin against others unceasingly. It is a place where the love of God is so completely and totally withdrawn forever, you will wish that you would cease to exist. It is a place where despair and anguish do not end in no amount of talent, money, genius, prayers, or even time can alleviate your suffering. I know this doctrine of hell is hard for many of us modern people to hear, but it's a doctrine that we stand by nonetheless. Jesus stood by it. He's our king and this is his kingdom, right? And I've had conversations with people who say that, that you know, hell seems unfair and I, and I understand you know, people say it just doesn't seem right that someone would go to hell even though they're a good person or just because they don't believe in Christianity. And I get that. I really do. But have you considered the alternatives? What, what becomes of God's justice? What becomes of God's holiness? And then have you considered the alternative worldview? Something, let's just take, for example, atheism, right? Which basically says that nothing happens when you die. But then what happens to all the people who have suffered under the hand of evil and abusive people who never got justice on this side? And what happens when justice administered to guilty people can never compare or can never make up for the suffering that a person caused to people? In other words, isn't, is there a kind of suffering and chaos a person could inflict on someone or other people so bad that earthly justice couldn't adjudicate it? These are questions we need to ask our atheist friends. But even more fundamental than that is this. So many people, so many people object to the biblical doctrine of hell and they do so wrongly because they assume they assume something wrong about what sends people there. They assume the wrong thing about what gets someone in heaven or hell. You see, in Christianity, judgment isn't fundamentally separating good people from bad people in whatever sort of <laughs> way that you might want to define that. No, Christianity and judgment, it's separating godly people from ungodly people. It's separating godly people from ungodly people. It's separating those who have been covered by the righteousness of Christ by those who haven't. And that's how Jesus describes the fate of the weeds, a place of gnashing and weeping of teeth. But notice how Jesus describes the fate of the wheat or the righteous or the sons and daughters of the kingdom, right? He says that we will be gathered up and shine like the sun in the kingdom. I love that. I love that phrase. And this phrase speaks of heavens, but specifically our future beauty, glory, awesomeness. In fact, it's a direct reference to Daniel 12, which says this, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. 
love it. I love that phrase. The new heavens and new earth under Christ's fully consummated kingdom is a place of unmatched beauty where believers in Christ are our most glorious, beautiful selves. We are without blemish and deformation both outwardly and inwardly. Our glory is obvious, overwhelming, and will be admired and marveled at by the saints for all of eternity. This is the moment in which we truly become that which we are judicially, righteous, free from sin within and free from sin's negative influence on the outside. We are utterly beautiful and glorious. Do you think of heaven like that? Do you think of heaven as the place in which we walk around saying, man, you look good. You look exactly the way that you were meant to look. You are perfect. You are perfect. You look good the way you're meant to be. That's heaven. That's not, that's not boring. And that's not a Hallmark card. That's biblical Christianity. And so, church, is the, is the heaven and hell that Jesus talks about more than anyone else in the Bible the heaven and hell that you believe in? But, Karst, this isn't actually what was confusing for the Jews. <laughs> this wasn't what was confusing for them, actually. Though they were confused by the kinds of people that would be in heaven and hell, right? Uh, think of Matthew, uh, what is it, Matthew 8, and the Roman centurion uh, who was ushered into the kingdom of God, whereas the Jews were thrown out of the kingdom. That was confusing, but uh, heaven, hell? No, that's not confusing for the Jews. What's really confusing about this parable, for the crowds anyways, and for the disciples, was the issue of when all of this would take place. You see, the Jews, they had mixed views in terms of how the Messiah would bring about the new kingdom. You know, basically everyone agreed that there would be a separation of sinners and righteous when the kingdom come, would come, but there was confusion over the details, right? When would he come back? Would it be soon, later? We don't know. People thought, look, we don't know when the Messiah is going to come, but whenever he does, that's when all of our enemies are going to be destroyed. When he comes back, that's when it's going to happen, okay? But here's the rub. Here's the rub. Jesus came preaching that he was the Messiah and that the kingdom had already come, but God's enemies weren't destroyed. They were still there. So this is why John the Baptist, when he's in prison, he, despite being the significant forerunner for Christ, he sent people to Jesus and said, hey, look, are you the one to come or should we expect another person? It's because even John the Baptist expected God's judgment to fall on unbelievers the moment the Messiah came and said the kingdom was there. But that's not what Jesus does at all. In fact, he heals God's enemies. He forgives them. Here's how D.A. Carson explains it. He says, whereas Judaism was accustomed to delays in waiting for the coming Messiah, what Jesus argues is both that the, that the kingdom has come and that the final judgment is still delayed. You see, Jesus, he's at this point in his ministry where people had become so hard-hearted and so hostile to his message about the kingdom that he had to speak to them in parables. And I think it was in part to 
spare them from even worse judgment. I think it was his mercy towards those who had no real interest in learning. You see, after all, nothing in this passage seems to suggest that the people couldn't have pursued Christ. It doesn't say that they couldn't have gone to Jesus and tried to stay with him and lodge with him. He probably would have welcomed them. But by and large, you know what the people do? They, they don't get it. They don't want to. Because for them, if Jesus really was the Messiah, and he is, the people would have thought, why are my enemies destroyed? Why are we still persecuted by the Romans? Why are we still doing all this? And it's the same thing that we think today, right? You know, I believe in Christianity. I'm trusting in Jesus. The kingdom has come, right? But why do I still struggle with sin? Why are we still dealing with wars and brokenness? Why do I still get up every single day and have to deal with the same problems? People are discouraged and confused by the way that Jesus presents the kingdom. But here's the thing. God's people have always had to live in the midst of unbelieving in a hostile world. It's always been that way. And God's people have always had to wait for vindication and judgment to take place. Think of Noah, for example, right? It was only after the flood that he seemed to be righteous. It was only after the flood that he was vindicated. Up until that point, people thought he was an idiot. And we could just walk through all of Scripture and we see the same thing happening over and over again. Abraham, Moses, Lot, the, the people who returned from the exile, they all had to live in the midst of evil while they waited for God. And they all had to figure out a way to live a holy life. There's the question that the Jews wrestled with for centuries, right? What about them? We're here right now, but what about them? What's God going to do with us? How do we live in this kingdom? And here comes Jesus, right? He brings God's kingdom in a way that the people (laughs) rarely understood, but he brings God's kingdom in a way that is nonetheless in perfect fulfillment of God's word. Because Jesus just isn't the Messiah of Daniel 7. He's also the Messiah of Isaiah 53, isn't he? The suffering servant who bears our sins and faces God's wrath on our behalf. You see, Jesus' kingdom didn't come dispensing judgment because Jesus came to bear God's judgment. And if you believe that, you will be safe from the final judgment that Jesus talks about. So that's why. That's why it takes so long. It's mercy. It's mercy. He wants to bring people to repentance. Our Lord has already done the hard work, church. He reigns victorious over evil, and his kingdom will one day finally be consummated. And we know these things will take place because Jesus has already died and risen. He's already conquered the grave. He's already bringing in people from all over the world who are coming to faith in him. God's word is proving itself true right now. And that's the good news I want you to see. If you don't remember anything I've said this morning, I want you to remember this. Even though we live in the midst of persistent evil and sin, God's kingdom has not, it cannot fail. It has not. It cannot fail. Hold this deep in your heart. 
And so, so you sort of transition. There's just a few questions I want to sort of leave with you. I want you to wrestle with this week. So feel free to write this down if you want or just think about it as I'm going through it. But the first question I want you to think about is this. Do you know how to live in the midst of a sinful world? Do you really know how to live as a Christian? Or do you just kind of go with the flow, just make up things maybe as you go along, maybe get a little bit of philosophy or religion from here and there, and then you just put it all together and hope for the best? There's lots of passages that speak to this, and I want to list a few, and you can write them down. For example, Ephesians 5, Romans 12, Philippians 1 and 2, 1 Peter 2 and 3. and Maybe you can study these passages, you know, this week. But the key passage that has helped me wrestle with this is actually 2 Peter 3, 4. It's, it's not on the screen. I do apologize for that. But just maybe just listen to what Peter says here. This is 2 Peter 3, 4, and if you want to turn there in your Bible, you can do that. The 2 Peter 3, 4 says this. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And then in verse 8, it says this. But, but don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as, as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In verse 11, Peter says, Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of God? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Can you, can you hear Peter's language? I can't help but thinking he's thinking of, of, of Matthew's account here, right? And all the things that Jesus taught him. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot, without spot or blemish and at peace. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Sounds like our passage this morning, doesn't it? So do you know how to live? Do you know how to live as a Christian as you wait for Christ? And then the second question I want to ask you is this. Is, is your life marked by a longing for Jesus to come back? Do you, do you actually want Jesus to come back? Or to ask it a different way, do, do you find it actually really easy to just wait for Jesus to come back? You know, I'm living life here and now I have great things. I'm comfortable. Could it be that some of us, we don't even feel the weight of this passage because we live so comfortably. We're so at home in this world. It doesn't bother us. We have so few enemies. We have so few hindrances. So little opposition from the world that being told to wait doesn't seem that difficult. This parable, actually, it's not even really that significant to me. Heaven seems like a loss. 
That's a sad thing about where we are nowadays. It doesn't even feel like the game that it is. But of course, that's not all of us. I know that's not all of us. Because God in his mercy has simultaneously allowed suffering, but he's also kept you. But do you, do you long for Jesus to come back? And the last question I want to leave us with as we, before we close is this. Do you find yourself decrying the sins of the culture or do you find yourself rejoicing in God's preservation of the church? Which one do you do more often? This, this might seem like a strange question to ask, but there's a point at which we must move beyond complaining about the sin and the brokenness in the world and accept the fact that we are wheat amidst weeds. You see, God's future judgment, it frees us up from having to be overly occupied and pessimistic with these things. After all, it's his kingdom, right? He will reign victorious. He is victorious even now. It's just a matter of time. In the meantime, we should consider and rejoice the fact that we're still here today at all, that God has preserved his church over the course of 2,000 years. In the midst of so much evil and brokenness and war and calamity, we're still here right now. That should cause us to rejoice. That should cause us to rejoice. So as we close this morning, I want to remind you all that yeah, we're in the midst of evil and brokenness, but God's kingdom it has not failed. It cannot fail. Jesus is king, right? So church, live like it. Endure. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word, honestly, it's been given to us, and at times it can be confusing, but if we just sit before it, and, and really meditate on it, it, it begins to make sense. If your spirit is at work in us, it begins to make sense. God, we are here in the midst of brokenness, but God, your kingdom can't fail. We praise you for it, Jesus, that you are the firstborn of the dead, as Revelation talks about. You are the ruler of kings on the earth. You have freed us from our sins by your blood. You've made us a kingdom and priest to God the Father, and to you belong glory and dominion forever. We love you, Jesus, and we pray that you would change our hearts by your word this morning. We pray this in your name.